Welcome to Pan-African Attitude Episode 2. We are here to talk about one of the most complicated, severe and long-running crises. Uh, coincidentally, it's also one of the most ignored, the Congo crisis. Well, this is an emergency podcast because of the emergency situation in the Congo. Frankly, we believe here at African Stream that this should not just concern Africans, but everyone across the world. The eastern part of DRC is a battleground. And this is because of the escalation of violence between M23 rebel group and the Congolese army. We've had weeks of bombs and rockets being dropped in markets and universities, and civilians are in between. So the largest city in eastern DRC, which is Goma, in North Kivu province, it's a city of about 2 million people. There are fears that that city might fall to rebels and the conflict and the humanitarian crisis might worsen. So to help us unpack this topic is uh, two special guests from the Friends of Congo. Uh, please welcome Maurice Kani. He's one of the co-founders of the Friends of Congo. Uh, he's, he currently serves as the organization's executive director. He's a Pan-Africanist who, um, who has led a Pan-African solidarity movement for over two decades in support of a free and liberated Congo, in the spirit of the first prime minister of the country, Patrice Emery Lumumba. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. And uh, we are also joined by Kambale Musavuli, a political analyst at the Center for Research on the Congo Kinshasa. He currently serves at the, as, uh, as the West Africa representative for Pan-Africanism Today's Secretariat from his base in Accra, Ghana. He, his work analyzes Kwame Nkrumah's seven-year development plan and the evolving political scene in West Africa. In addition to his advocacy, he's a skilled technologist and techno-activist focusing on cybersecurity training for African institutions. Welcome, Kabale. Thank you. Okay, let's get the show on the road. Uh, my question, my, my question uh, is to you, Maurice. Why is the world ignorant of the Congo crisis? Uh, thanks, for the, thanks for the question. Uh, there's, there's several reasons why there is uh, less attention paid to, to the Congo than other parts of the world. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, Congo is sometimes uh, referred to as an uh, empire of silence. We've seen uh, movies made about it. And uh, the, the silence around the Congo and the ignorance around the Congo is not only a contemporary one, but it's also a historic one, uh, especially considering the role that Congo has played in the 500-year tragedy of people of African ancestry. You're talking about the most devastating uh, occurrence uh, as it relates to people of African ancestry. That is the trafficking of Africans from the continent to the Americas. Uh, Congo was uh, a major factor in that, the Congo region. Uh, according to Emory University's uh, slavery database, uh, almost half of the Africans that were trafficked from the continent to the Americas came out of the Congo region, the Central Africa region. They said. Uh, four out of every 10 Africans that were trafficked, uh, according to their, to their database. So if we look at the, from the 1500s, right, right up to the present, uh, you, you fast forward about 300 plus years, we see again Congo being central to the drama of Africans. Uh, the Berlin Conference, 1884, 1885, was also known as the Congo Conference. 
And it is there that Congo was given to King Leopold II as his own personal property. And within a 22-year period from 1885 to 1908, Congolese population was decimated by half. An estimated 10 million Congolese perished as the king extracted rubber and ivory to feed Western industry, right? So we know about uh, the Holocaust in Germany. Some people may even know about uh, the Armenian genocide, but very few people know about the role that uh, King Leopold played in decimating the Congolese population by half. So historically, the centrality of Congo historically has been silenced. Um, by the same token, contemporary Congo has also been silenced, where we see since 1996, an estimated 6 million Congolese have uh, perished. Uh, as a result, in, in large part, of the scramble for Congo's resources. Now, why is it that uh, we know so very little about the Congo? A, a major part of it, a major part of it, is because of the global interests that are engaged. The United States is uh, one of the primary beneficiaries of the instability of the Congo. And the United States uh, government is also one of the uh, key causes of the instability that we see in the Congo today. We cannot discuss the instability in the Congo today without discussing uh, the largest covert action that was mounted by the United States in the 1960s to overthrow the democratically elected prime minister and Patrice Emile Lumumba. And that set the stage uh, for what we see today in that Lumumba wasn't only overthrown, uh, but the democratic movement that he was leading uh, was eviscerated, dismantled. And then the United States imposed a dictatorship over the Congolese people for over three decades. So that role the United States has played and continue to play in today's instability where the U.S. in 1996 uh, backed an invasion of the Congo by U.S. allies, primarily Rwanda and Uganda. And uh, then again in 1998, back a second invasion, uh, which triggered what the United Nations says the deadliest conflict in the world since World War II. So uh, great power uh, interest, the United States. Uh, is on the wrong side of history in the Congo. And when the United States' interests are at stake in a country and the U.S. is on the wrong side of history uh, or on the wrong side of the moral equation, we find that the corporate media uh, is more or less silent about what is taking place uh, in, that, uh, uh, in that sphere where the U.S. is operating. So that, that's one reason, because the U.S. interests are, are involved and the corporate media is not too quick. Uh, to shine a light on what's unfolding there. Secondly, there's this uh, uh, the preconceived notion uh, about uh, Congo and Africa. See, the continent uh, is often referred to um, by white supremacists as a dark continent. And the Congo represents the heart of darkness, right? We're tapping into Joseph Conrad's uh, classic novel, Heart of Darkness. So whatever happens there, people figure, oh, you know, these Africans, they, they've always killed each other and uh, they'll continue to keep, uh, kill each other. They, they attribute this ati these atavistic qualities uh, to Africans, and they see Africans in the heart of Africa uh, embodying uh, those, uh, those qualities. So you really can't do anything uh, about it. You know, if they're, if they're mass death, if they're raped and they're killing, oh, that's what Africans do, right? Because that's the preconceived notion that's being fulfilled by the realities that are occurring on, on the ground. Sec a third reason, is uh, there's a language barrier, right? The, uh, it's predominantly French-speaking. So the news that's coming out 
it's not coming out into the English um, speaking uh, speaking world. So that that's also a a factor. Uh, and and the fourth is that it's not uh, so cut and dry, right? If, if we look at the situation today, we know that Israel is bombing Palestine and bombing Gaza and committing a genocide. So Israel, the bad guys, the Palestinian, the good guys, Israel, the oppressor, the Palestinians, uh, uh, the victim. So they're very, very clear and very stark. It's a little bit more complicated uh, in the Congo. Uh, and uh, it's, it's not a dramatic uh, the, the conflict is drawn out. It's been now a quarter century. Uh, so things move slower. And in today's world of, uh, you know, the, the bombs and things moving fast and just everything moving quickly, uh, it, it doesn't gain as much, uh, as much traction. And then finally, the architects, the perpetrators who are committing the, the main perpetrators, like the president of Rwanda, uh, the president of uh, Paul Kagame, president of Rwanda, the president of uh, Uganda, Yuri Museveni. They benefit from imperial privilege. They're allies of the United States, allies of the United Kingdom. So the crimes that they commit in the Congo, all right, the crimes they commit, they've committed for the last quarter century. What the U.S. does is that it runs diplomatic, it runs political interference so that they're not held to be account. Uh, in addition to that, they hold these leaders up, uh, contrary to their practices in the region, they hold them up as uh, the beacon of hope for, for, uh, for Africa. They, President Clinton dubbed, dubbed them the new breed of African leaders, the Renaissance leaders, Pan-African leaders. So it, it creates um, this propaganda that's out there, uh, makes it difficult to, for people to cut through it to see what's really happening and see that, hey, these guys are really the bad guys. They have the blood of millions of Africans on their hands. Uh, they've invaded and plundered and led a war of aggression and plunder against another African nation for a quarter century. But with the massive propaganda from the West, uh, it's uh, a little more difficult uh, for you to get to the bottom of that. So those are some of the reasons why uh, there is just such this, uh, this silence around the Congo and uh, the, uh, the, the atrocities that are occurring there uh, do not really get out into the, into the masses. Uh, <clears throat> thank you. Thank you. And now you've briefly mentioned that, you know, these major mainstream organizations have been slow to pick up on news coming out of the Congo. And I, I sort of find it odd considering the amount of resources that the likes of CNN, BBC, MSNBC have at their disposal, you know. So outside of the mainstream on social media, Instagram, Twitter, we have seen horrific, horrific images of, you know, mothers slash very young children, you know, crying at the foot of their mother's bodies, houses touched. But this is not really coming out in what we call uh, Western mainstream media. So, you know, you only briefly mentioned it, but do you mind, you know, maybe expanding a bit on why this is the case, on why, you know, we aren't seeing as much of what's happening in Congo as we should have? Oh, that question is for me. Or it's for Kambali. Uh, I, I love you. It's fine. Uh, I just, go ahead, Kambali. You can jump in. I mean, uh, why isn't why aren't the images right getting into mainstream media? I think Maurice already touched onto it, but specifically for the context of Africa, I'll share a story of a Ugandan journalist I know. Uh, he used, he works at Voice of America, strangely, but he was actually in the northeast of the DRC. Uh, during the killings that took place uh, that has made uh, a warlord named Bosco Tangada be at the International Co uh, Criminal Court right now, right? 
And this killing was done between two ego tribes, the Lendo versus the Hammer, and that's, that's the narrative they pushed. But this journalist was on the ground, right? He filmed. He actually also took his footage, and his footage was used at the ICC as testimony. While he knew what was actually taking place, when he does the coverage, he will not say something that was against the political line of uh, Voice of America. So he will come to the news and say that the situation in the Congress is ethical. But when I sit down with him and speak to him, he will explain to me how Tomalubanga, how uh, the others, right, were actually massacring villages to villages. And he could not understand why they would not stop them from these massacres. But he knew it was not an ethnic conflict. He knew the specific militia group committing the crimes. And he also had the video. But why? The, the editors, right? The editors choose these, they, they keep this narrative. And that's sometimes was frustrating me uh, when I read the news about the Congo. Um, and sometimes even I'm frustrated by African media. Uh, one of them this week, uh, during the African Cup, uh, posted a uh, made a post about the Congo because I'm sure all of us saw the Congolese players at the semifinal and the action that they took. So one of the major Instagram um, social media page made a post about the Congo, and I was very disturbed by the post. Right, this is an African medium platform which has close to a million followers online, stated the, the, the narrative that's shared pretty much by the status quo, that uh, the Rwandan government is then denying supporting the M23, yet says that the reason why they are in the Congo is because of going after ethnic Hutus who were responsible for the uh, Rwandan genocide. That's a very problematic statement, especially for a media platform that has close to a million followers, mostly young Africans. And I challenged that post, right? I said, you can't even, in, in the era where, you know, I will use the context of East Africa, right? Many of us have friends who work in Rwanda, who live in Rwanda. We know that in Rwanda, the president Kagame said there are no more ethnic groups. Right? Every Rwandan is Hutu and Tutsi, right? You can't mention that name, but we are all Rwandans. So when you say ethnic Hutu rebels in Congo, who are these ethnic Hutu rebels? Are they Congolese? Are they Rwandans? Right? So you already get into the narrative that this is an ethnic conflict, not even understanding that these ethnic Hutus are Rwandans. And if we even go to the logic of, let's say, right, these ethnic Hutus have committed genocide in 1994. We are in 2004, uh, 2024. So if they did commit, and let's say that in, two, in 1994, they were in their 30s, right? Young, 30-year-old, genocidal killing Rwandans. Okay. 30 years later, these 30-year-old are in the 60s, correct? So are we saying that we have 60-year-old old men running in the corner with guns, threatening <laughs> Rwanda's security? Right? But this yeah. line, 
since the beginning of the war in the Congo from 1996, you know, as a Congolese, I have seen that every single year, Rwanda is not in Congo, right? Rwanda, uh, if they say, if Rwanda is in Congo, it's for security reasons, right? To go after those who committed genocide and they've run that story for 30 years while media, mainstream media, and even some African medias are not challenging and saying, wait a minute, because I, that 60 year old kill, I know, it's threatening. These are young Rwandans, and there is a fundamental problem that these Rwandans who have come to the Congo since 1994, at the end of the genocide, 1.2 million of them came, and many of them have never returned, and many of them, right, up to 200,000 that we can say today, were killed in the Congo while they were under defense force. For so the rigorousness of the, the rigor needed for the media to go after the stories, as our friends say in one of the interviews we did with him for um, Crisis in the Congo, was saying that the situation in the Congo is complex, but it can be understood. It just requires a little rigor, uh, a, a little uh, questioning, right? To say, are a hundred million Congolese who, I will go to what most Africans know, who have given Africa one of the best cultural elements, which is Congolese music. Every African party I've gone to, you have listened to Congolese music, right? Are these people just so criminal that they are killing six million people? No, that's not the case. So what is happening? And getting courageous journalists to start writing, to start covering, and telling the narrative of the Congolese. If it wasn't for the soccer players in the Congo at the uh, African Cup of Nations, many Africans will not even question what was happening. That the Congolese, after 30 years of conflict, right, uh, almost 30 years, went to what I would call an international stage and made a call to us said the situation in the Congo is an emergency. It's a genocide. They didn't name names. They made a sign to tell people we can be silent now. And history will judge us to say, when the Congolese called for help to the entire African continent, did we mobilize to end the genocide? And this is the time for us to do so. Thank you so much, uh, Kambale, for that analysis. And of course, much later, we're going to discuss at length the issue of the Hutus and the, uh, the Rwanda genocide and these rebels that are purportedly in Congo. And just to follow up, and probably this still goes out to you, uh, Kambale, seeing as you represent, of course, the pan uh, part organization, which uh, of course uh, fights for Africa's dignity and Africa's sovereignty. And we have seen that um, previously in 1884, when we had the scramble and partition of Africa in Berlin, most of the imperialists or colonizers who are coming into Africa um, were coming in because of the natural resources that Africans had and how these resources were going to benefit uh, Europe. And we have seen this in many books, like Walter Rodney writes about how Europe underdeveloped Africa. Now, when we look at this and also when we focus on that, how Europe underdeveloped Africa, but still continues to underdevelop Africa, I just want to shed some light on the wealth and the mineral resources in Congo. 
which is estimated at a whooping 24 trillion USD. And we see a lot of uh, minerals in the Congo, such as gold. We see cobalt. And in the cobalt, cobalt excuse me, that we have in DRC, it is more than all the cobalt that we have in the world combined. And of course, this cobalt is used in the making of phones, in the making of laptops. We see big companies like Apple and Tesla, Microsoft, Intel, who actually um, what pay for the services of child labor that go on in Congo and have um, contributed to, one, the war that is going on, two, the child labor that is going on, three, the conflict that is going on in the Congo uh, that is never ending. We see that um, in the year 2000, um, to the year 2022, there has been an increase in the manufacture of phones from the cobalt in Congo by more than 10%. And of course, all these have been distributed and sold out. And we do not see the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo benefiting from any of this wealth. We see uh, so much war that is there. We see internally displaced people. We're seeing so much poverty. So my first question that goes out to you, uh, Kambale, is how does the DRC Congo and also us as Africans be able to get ourselves out of these imperialist powers and global powers that are actually perpetrating the war in the DRC? And this is a two-phrased question. And the second one, of course, because of this war, we are seeing a lot of young people uh, who, who are frustrated, who have lost hope, and who are now uh, re re rebelling against the Western powers. What is your take on the young people who are rebelling on these uh, Western powers? But also, how does the DRC and the rest of Africa unshackle themselves from these imperialists and the neocolonialists and the global powers that are bringing in war for them to be able to benefit from their minerals and their wealth? I mean, it's a question of sovereignty. Uh, the fundamental question for us is how we're going to control our land and resources. And this is why um, I also follow the, the ideas of, of Kwame Krumah. Patrice Lumumba also fought for that, right? How can the Congolese control their land and resources? There have been some indications in the Congo of a movement, right, for people to actually control their land and resources legally uh, through mining reform. Um, I was pleasantly surprised to hear uh, one of the ministers in Mali as they were discussing the revision of the mining code uh, that took inspirations uh, to the movement in the DRC around revi uh, revision of how uh, people benefit from that. But the context that you share, right, need to be put in two ways. One, the expo exploitation, the direct exploitation by mining companies. And two, mm -hmm. the pilfering of Congo's resources illegal. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Apple and Tesla, and I will go directly to Tesla. I am still yeah. surprised today that <laughs> Tesla has not been held accountable for exploiting the Congo. And I will just share the direct line of how we can hold them accountable. Tesla gets his cobalt directly from a company called Glencore. Mm -hmm. Glencore is Which a exploits young, young children. Uh, company. Uh, used to have a South African as the head, by the way, right? I think his name was Glassenberg. Glassenberg, the South African, was the head of Glencore, while the South African apartheid-born uh, guy, no, Elon Musk, was also the head of Tesla. Glencore got his mind from an Israeli businessman named Dan Gertler. Right? And Dan Gertler 
was, and it's still under investigation in the United States, right? And I'll bring up one specific case. You know, sometimes we we'll look at what's happening in the Congo. We say, you know, these are the Africans on their own. There is a um, firm, right, a hedge fund in the United States called Hotshift. They've changed the name now. I can't remember what is the new name now. So Hotshift, a hedge fund in New York City, Wall Street, was dealing with Israeli businessman Dan Gertler to get access to mines in DRC. And they were bribing him and Congolese officials, two Congolese officials, the president of the Congo, Joseph Kabila, and his advisor, Augusta Katumba Moyke. The way we know this is because in the end of the trial that was brought in by the Department of Justice, Hakshif was found guilty of bribing African government, including the Congo. So it wasn't just Congo, I think it was also Equatorial Guinea and another country. And Glencore got its mind, right, through the hands of um, Dan Gertler as well. So Dan Gertler has been mentioned in the US court, they hid his name, right? They didn't mention his name, but when you read the judgment, you can see that they are talking about the Israeli businessman with close ties with the president of the Congo. Just blood is yes. certainly mm -hmm. they sanctioned him. Right? He has US sanctions for many of his dealings, illegal dealings, bribing Congolese politicians, getting um, mines a penny on the dollar and reselling it to the London stock markets. All the corrupt practices that he's done in the DRC. No, he's been sanctioned. So with US sanctions, his bank accounts are frozen. So Glencore, in the deal that they have with him, because he sold them a mine, is that he's supposed to receive 3% royalties for any sale of cobalt that he does. Up until today, unless Glencore come out and say they have stopped, we are clear that Glencore continue to give him almost 250000 uh, If I'm not mistaken, it's about $250,000 or something, a million a day that he get of royalties on Congo's cobalt till today. But how and who Glencore sells his cobalt to? Tesla. Tesla gets his cobalt directly from Glencore, which is providing an Israeli businessman right, money. And the money that he's getting, he invests in two construction companies registered in Canada, building the wall and settlements in um, Palestine. And most people don't make that connection. So if we know that there is a company that is giving, what I would say, illegal money to an Israeli businessman, taking Congo's uh, cobalt, a penny on a dollar, giving it to Tesla, and then this guy is going to think that he's the genius, right? That he can just make um, metal for, no, exploded uh, from the people and then making it available to consumers without any repercussion. Oh, there hasn't been that many traction around it. I know there was, uh, there is a trial, an American lawyer in uh, Washington, D.C. who's taking to task Apple and Tesla. But Tesla for me is the, one of the most important cases because the direct linking exists. Right? Tesla get his cobalt from Glencore, 
Glencore got his money from Dan Gertler, the Israeli businessman, who is under U.S. sanction and continue to receive um, royalties over it. But beyond cobalt, even though you say that Congo has the vast majority of the cobalt in the world, 70% of the world production is in the ORC, we are not even discussing lithium yet, right? Lithium has been discovered in the Congo. The largest lithium, one of the largest lithium reserves in the world is found in Manono, right? And Manono is close to a city called Kolwezi. Growing up yeah. in Congo, Kolwezi did not have an international airport. Today, you can fly from around the world directly to Kolwezi. They have a fantastic airport there. And the exploitation is actually taking place now in Kolwezi. It's almost as the Eldorado of 2024, where everyone is going. So for me, we can go minerals to minerals. We can talk about copper. We can talk about diamonds, you know, who controls the diamond uh, industry. We can talk about cobalt. But in the end is that the Congolese people on the international level are not controlling their wealth. So their battle, just as it's Mali, in Niger, and Burkina Faso, who are demanding greater share of, of the wealth is also what the Congolese people need. And all the mechanism uh, that's needed for Congolese to get the greater share is the discussion, right? It's not, um, I don't subscribe to the notion of um, we need to certify Congo's minerals, right? So that we can see uh, where it's coming from. It's not exploiting children. I don't subscribe to that notion because it doesn't address the quote question of sovereignty, the question of who controls the wealth. And even in this movement, right? You know, there are people who are calling for that. The United States has an answer to that. You know what the United States is doing? They are what? investing billions of dollars to build mm -hmm. railroads from the Katanga province mm -hmm. all the way to Angola. They're calling it the Lobisto yeah. Corridor, so that they will tell people <clears> that <throat> the exploitation of Congo's copper. We have mechanized the process mm -hmm. of uh, getting access to Congo's cobalt, and we mm -hmm. know how it's coming from the machine on the ground to the trains, to the railroad mm -hmm. we build, and taking it out, out of the Atlantic, while Congolese are still making a penny on the dollar and still have no control of their land Kambale, I'll just uh, maybe I'll just stop you for a bit to just uh, maybe wrap up a bit with how do we do the DRC especially unshackle themselves uh, from these global powers to ensure that they are the people who actually uh, have control of their own wealth and that it actually serves them as a country. Congo is in Africa and Congo doesn't just belong to the Congolese, it belongs to the entire African continent. It's a uh, as we said, for a patrimony of the African continent. Congolese are fighting. You said it even with the protests in front of the Western mm -hmm. embassies, right? And mm -hmm. they've had this history of struggle. They're facing mm -hmm. a brutal regime, their own local government. But while yes. they fight on the outside, they also depend on everyone. Uh, uh, they fight on, outside, on everyone mm -hmm. on the outside to support the struggle. Wherever you yeah. are, mm -hmm. put pressure on your government to be on the support of the Congolese, be yes. on international stages with the African Union and the SADC mm -hmm. platform, ESC, bring up cases, right? And in terms yes. of the case, the one call that we get for Dr. Mukwege, our Nobel Peace Prize, is that he believes until there is justice, this question of Congo's conflict is going to continue. Because those who are committing the crimes, right, don't, mm -hmm. are not afraid to commit it again. 
So the, yes. the, the direct call from the Congolese is the implementation of the UN Mapping Exercise Report, which calls for an international tribunal for Congo, which will make sure that those who committed crimes, be it Congolese, be it neighboring countries, be it even multinationals, right? That any actors will see that they in court and will be held accountable. To have that process, Congo cannot just do an international tribunal for the Congo, right? Mm -hmm. Because some of the mm -hmm. people who committed the crimes are not in the Congo. So they will need yeah. the partnership. An international Africa. system, yes. That means that we need to come together as Africans. Uh, Eric? That's, uh, that's incredible, you know, that the Congo is still being operated on as it was, as Africa was, you know, being pillaged even before in eight, in the 80s, where these imperialists came and put in infrastructure to help them to extract resources. Yeah. I saw the other day when um, uh, a report yeah. that choppers just fly from across the border, mm -hmm. going to uh, Eastern DRC, uh, you know, pack the minerals and then fly out. No payment of taxes, no payment of anything to the government. This is just nuts. But Eric, that also means that the only people who have access are those rich people who have choppers, meaning that any of the poor Congolese cannot really have access to any of these minerals. Perhaps, of course, uh, you know. What Eric, we have, yep. what Eric said is, is so central and vital for, for people to understand. Uh, Kambali had run, run down the, the corporate interest, uh, this and the Department of Justice in the U.S. Uh, finding them. They're now called sculpture, sculpture uh, capital. Uh, but what you said, Eric, uh, is really key for people to understand. The, we have to remember, Congo wasn't created, the modern Congo wasn't created by Congolese. It was created by Europeans. And there was a design and an imprint uh, a framework that was laid out. And that framework uh, was consistent with the previous three, 300 years of history where human bodies were being extracted out of the Congo region. And that the transition from human bodies to uh, rubber, to copper, and all those other minerals. So that framework of extraction is still very much in place, irrespective of who comes into the uh, into the Congo. And uh, as Kambali articulated, and as uh, Professor Nzengola in in his book, uh, The Congo from Leopold to Kabila lays out, uh, the people's struggle is to control and determine the affairs of the Congo. In the midst, right, in the midst of a geostrategic battle for her natural resources. One thing that Africans ought to be very clear about is the centrality and the importance of Congo to the future of the African continent. You referenced Kwame Nkrumah's challenge of Congo. He lays it out. At, at the center of the United States of Africa, of the Pan-African project, is the Congo, where Congo is going to be the capital of the United States of Africa and its strategic location in the heart of Africa, the size of Western Europe, uh, the tremendous uh, spectacular wealth uh, that is there, was going to serve as the industrial engine for the development and the advancement of the African continent. So when Frank Fanon said in his uh, Toward African Revolution, the, the fate of all of us is at stake in the Congo, he's saying that to each and every one of us as Africans, that when we look at the Congo, we have to see Congo as being central to the future, the liberation of Africa, and uh, by extension, the African world. So that centrality 
of Congo to our future was laid out uh, by the, the best that we produce in terms of independent leaders. The Fanons, uh, Ahmed Sekouture of, uh, of Guinea, Modiba Keita of, uh, of Mali, Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana. That was what the, and they rallied around the Congo. They sent figures like Andre Blouin uh, to, to support uh, Patrice Lumumba in his quest for, for liberation. Now, fast forward to today, what we see, those so-called Pan-Africanists, those who have been dubbed Pan-Africanists by outsiders, they're ravaging the Congo, the Museveni's, the Kagamis. They're, they're, they're picking apart the Congo. Museveni said, Congo's like a banana plantation. You go in and get what you want. Now, compare to what Museveni said to what Fanon said. Fanon said, the fate of all of us is at stake in the Congo. Museveni said, the banana plantation, go in and get what you want. That's why if you look since 1996, the gold exports, the timber exports in, in Uganda have shot up because they're ravaging the Congo. Congo even yes. had to take uh, Uganda to the International Court of Justice for the pillaging and for the, uh, the, the crimes that they've committed in the Congo. If you look at the exports of, uh, of Rwanda, the, the cassiterite, uh, the tin, the coltan, Rwanda has become the largest producer of coltan in the world. They're plundering the Congo. And they, they find that it's so critical, think about this, both Rwanda and Uganda invaded the Congo twice, 1996, 1998, together. Since that time, they supported militia groups in the Congo. However, because the resources of the Congo are so critical, they fought each other in the Congo. Rwanda and Uganda, they, uh, what they call a six-day war in 2000, where they killed thousands of Congolese and injured scores over minerals in the Congo. So what Africans, uh, Africans at the grassroots, at the base, ought to be challenging their leaders. Those are seeking to plunder uh, the, the Congo. Ought to be confronting the narrative that they're putting out there. Uh, keeping cheap cities, clean cities uh, in Kigali, uh, clean Kigali, is not a pan doesn't make you a pan Africanist, right? If you have clean cities in Kigali, uh, but yet you're up into the the British Commonwealth, you sought membership to be in the British Commonwealth, you sought membership to be in the French Francophonie and the presidency of the Francophonie. That, that, I can't imagine Nkrumah trying to be up in the British Commonwealth and in the Francophonie, or a, 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 or a, a Secouture. So it is vital, it is vital for a young African to understand the importance of Congo uh, to the future of Africa, to understand what our forefathers and foremothers did in rallying around the Congo, embracing the Congo, saw it as central and critical to the advancement of the continent uh, uh, as a whole. So, and not just the continent as a whole, if we look at Congo being a part of the second largest rainforest in the world, vital in combating the climate crisis, uh, a space that sequesters more carbon than all of the rainforests combined, right? Uh, Amazon, uh, Borneo, uh, home to the largest tropical peatlands in the world, the size of, uh, of England, that uh, contains, a, it's a virtual carbon bomb, it, it, it traps carbon that's equivalent to about 20 years of uh, pollution coming out of U.S. usage of combustion engines. So it's not only important to Africans, it's important to the planet. Right, that protecting the Congo rainforest is vital to the future of humanity. And at the same time, at the same time, we're all talking about a green energy transition, a clean energy transition. There is no green energy transition, clean energy transition without the Congo, producing 70% of the world's cobalt, more than all mm -hmm. the countries combined, a critical mm -hmm. ingredient in the rechargeable batteries. 
right? So yeah. we talk about combating the climate crisis, dealing with the green transition. You can't, you can't talk to have that discussion. As a, you're talking about a corporate media, they can't talk, have that discussion without talking about the Congo. And at the same time, when somebody talk about the Lobito uh, rail corridor where they're shipping uh, uh, copper from Kowazi uh, out to the Lobito port along the rail, uh, rail line that's recently developed, uh, first shipment that occurred in December by uh, Ivanhoe Mines, uh, the, the CEO of Ivanhoe Mines, uh, uh, Mr. Friedland, was just on, uh, on Bloomberg News talking about how you know, this is uh, amazing for, uh, for, uh, for his corporation, you know, for Ivanhoe, not for the Congolese people. But here we see, again, that uh, Lobito uh, corridor that was developed by the, supported by the United States and the European Union is a part of that geostrategic battle for Congo's resources. That came out of the global, or the global partnership for investment in infrastructure. The, 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 the partnership for global investment in infrastructure is the United States response to China's Belt and Road Initiative. And it's being played oh, out right God. now in the Congo. Yeah. So yeah. this is important, oh, not only to Congolese, but also to Africans. And we're talking about high stakes, geostrategic battle for the control of the resources. And the central question that remains, how is it that Congolese yeah. are gonna control and determine their own affairs? We are arguing that we need to build a global constituency to support the Congolese who are on the front lines fighting to control and determine the affairs of, of the Congo. The Congo movement today is as important as the Free South Africa movement was yesterday, and we need Africans rallying behind Congolese in that, in that undertaking. If, if we could switch gears, uh, Maurice, that's all facts. Definitely a lot of gems there. If, if we could switch gears because of the savagery that is ongoing at the, in the Congo, and uh, the ignorance to it all. Uh, we have about 7 million people now internally displaced in the Congo. And these are Congolese. We have about a million others who have escaped from other places uh, coming to the Congo. And the interconnectedness of Africa now. Uh, if the Congo is not free, the rest of, the Africa, uh, of Africa cannot yeah. be free. If I could ask a sensitive question. Um, not to get you know, embroiled into the web of uh, haters, who talk about the pro-Palestine agenda in a negative way and compare it to Africa, and they talk about this, you know, uh, oppression Olympics that, you know, why not the Congo, why, why is just Gaza being covered? If I could put it to you, um, the question is not why the Congo crisis has been ignored or not covered as much, but since that um, uh, the, the oppression that is ongoing in Gaza has gained extensive coverage. We've seen coverage from all corners. Why does that get more coverage? Or if I could put it better, why does that earn coverage and not the raping and killing industries of the Congo? Uh, just a quick and a, and a short answer to, to that question. Uh, the United States, the empire, the empire is directly involved in arming, financing, uh, backing, uh, backing Israel, covering for a genocidal regime. Uh, so when you have the United States directly involved in a, in a conflict of that nature, it's going to bring all of that attention from the corporate media. That's a major, uh, major reason why we see that, uh, the extent of the, of the coverage that, that, that we see around, around Gaza. That, that, that's just a short answer, and maybe Kambali can add up as well. 
thank you for keeping it short. Uh, we, in the interest of time, let's uh, try and run through the rest of the of the questions. We have quite a few. Sure, William? sure. Now, uh, mine is, you know, Africa was colonized, so was Asia, so was Latin America by all these uh, European colonial powers. But, you know, we have the Chinese who are colonized, I mean, Britain to Hong Kong for quite a while. But the China today is not the China of 100 years ago. The Brazil of today is not the Brazil of 100 years ago. Yet in DRC, it's like the colonizers never left. So my question will be, why is DRC almost unique in this respect? You can't talk about the economic situation of the Congo without looking at what they actually have done in the country. And I was speaking to a Congolese elder once, you know, when I was discussing, I said, Mobutu, you know, he stole $7 billion of wealth when he left. And he looked at me and said, what's your evidence of that? Right? And that made me think, and he starts sharing with me some facts that made me myself actually look back at what happened in Congo's economy. And when I realized what happened in Congo's economy, I was blown away, right? That Congo in the 70s was at, this, at the peak of its economy, especially around the production of copper and cobalt, right? Few things happened during that time. There was the Shaba one and Shaba two. Uh, these were two wars in the Congo where the West even came and supported Mobutu during that time. And that actually caused the fall of the price of cobalt at the end of the 70s going into the 80s. The World Bank actually hired a consultant. His name is Erwin Blumenthal. And they hired Erwin Blumenthal to come and study Congo's economy and figure out what we could do to improve the economy. Erwin Blumenthal published a damaging report, right? We're literally telling the World Bank, no, this economy is going to crash. We need to reform it. That's early 80s, 82, 83. After the report was published, just as this is happening actually to Ghana right now, most people don't even realize. The same thing that happened to Zaire, which is now Congo, is happening to Ghana right now. After that study, the World Bank forced the Congolese government to make the central bank governor to be the, the IMF World Bank consultant, Aaron Blumenthal. And Aaron Blumenthal implemented the structural adjustment program. And the structural adjustment program had an impact on the industries in the Congo. He had an impact on the uh, military, right? He had an impact on education because a lot of the funding, like from the 83 all the way to the end of the fall of the wall of Berlin, Congo changed. I listened to Ibrahim Traoré's interview with Alain Foucault. He said the same exact thing when he was speaking about the challenge of the Burkina military fighting the uh, so-called terrorists, the, these so-called jihadists, that he connected the inadequacy of his military to the structural adjustment program of the 80s. So the structural adjustment program is just one thing that I'm mentioning. We can talk about a package. We can talk about the wars that have decimated, right? All these things have affected the country where, to the point where we are in 2024, we are wondering how come Congo can get up by itself? Well, there are so many different elements one of them 
is how they affected the economy. And the others are the different interference, imposing leaders, imposing ways of governance, and so on. So, and Congolese have been under constant attack. So while on the economic side, right, we are saying this is what's happening, but on the people side, Congolese have always resisted, right? They resist the government, they resist the Mobutu government, who supported the Mobutu government, the West, right? And whenever we had a chance to choose our leaders, just remember what happened to him, he was assassinated. During these past uh, 20 years where we have had the conflict, there have been packets of resistance. Even now, right? We spoke about Congolese protesting in front of Western embassies. But we're not speaking about what the Congolese were doing the week before protests in the, uh, before the, uh, the Western embassies. The week before, a group of young Congolese went in front of the parliament, staged a protest, right? Where they were calling out our government, the Congolese government, by saying that the town of Bunangana has been under rebel control for six, 600 days that we need to do something. You know what happened to these young Congolese? Seven of them were arrested, right? And they were taken to the secret, uh, our secret service that we call ANAIR. And one of them had just published a document, Fred Bauma published a document saying that he was tortured while he was there. And the week later, I'm very happy. There are many Congolese who are clear about what the imperialists are, right? I'm very happy they are going in front of the US embassy and saying that we know the U.S. supports uh, Rwanda. We know the EU supports Rwanda. But we cannot forget, even while they're saying this, the Congolese on the inside are also challenging their own government. right? And that same government, in the contradiction of what's happening, that same government is also supported by the West, which is a very fascinating thing to think about, right? Is yeah. we know that we've had regulations in the DRC, but Western countries, every time we have rigged elections, what do they do? They come out they and say, well, <laughs> exactly. So mm -hmm. we have to look at uh, the Congolese resistance is in a way where inside of the country, those who are able to have space to speak up, it's a very small group because you are dealing with the state. They are still doing that. So we should shine light on that. We should shine light on the Congolese who are connecting the conflict to the imperialist forces. We should also shine light on the corporations on the outside. So it's a multi-pronged approach of looking at what the people are doing. But it has historical ties of why Congo is here today. Yes, economic ties uh, also. But Congolese are resisting in the process with the hope of solidarity of others so that we can tackle all the challenges that we have on the country. If 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 Kambale, if I could uh, just extrapolate on that on the on the politics, I was in in Goma in December. Uh, I covered uh, you know about a week just before the elections, and after immediately after landing in the airport, I saw you know you know uh, soldiers on the on the on the back of vehicles, not just holding AK forty sevens, but heavy artillery you know machine guns and uh, you know just patrolling the city. And um, on the campaign trail, uh, candidate President Chisekedi now, uh, you know, said something which people are really shocked by. You know, he said that he is going to attack Rwanda if he is going to be reelected. Mm -hmm. And he actually went as far as comparing President Kagame to one of the 
20th century's uh, worst villains, that is Hitler. So he said that Rwanda's Kagame is going to face the same um, fate that Hitler you know, met, which is killing. So do you think that the recent escalation, because just after the election, we had this escalation from M23 and in, in Goma, Masisi, things are really blowing up there. Do you think that this recent escalation has anything to do with that threat from President Chisekedi? Absolutely not. I mean, I have to make a disclaimer. I'm not the spokesperson of Chisekedi, right? And I do think that he's a populist. He used populist statements to uh, for the elections. Um, yeah. And yeah. he said that he's going to attack Rwanda. Every Congolese is saying that to him right now. So you say that if one Congolese die, you will go to Kigali. We're still not seeing you in Kigali. So Congolese are putting already pressure on his populist statement that he's, he's not backing up with uh, uh, the same power, right? But I don't yeah. think that the escalation of the M23 has anything to do uh, with the current situation. And I think also, um, as we continue to discuss even in the future, that we don't call them the M23. Uh, it's very important, right? Because when you call them the M23, you think that they are some new rebel group. Sultani Makenga, who's the leader of the M23, was in a rebel group called AFDL in 1996 with Laurent Désiré Kabila. So why are we calling the M23 today? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. AFDL became RCD with Sultani Makenga. Mm -hmm. Why are we calling him M23? RCD became CNDP in the 2008 with Laurent Kunda, who's still in so-called house arrest in Kigali. Why are we calling them that? Today we are calling the M23. And from Nairobi, you know, we had Congolese who came and called themselves Alliance Fleuve Congo. So tomorrow, M23 yeah. may be called AFC, right? That mm. they change. So we need to first be clear that this is a rebel group, which is a proxy rebel militia for Rwanda, right? But Great every point. time we have elections, if you look at the 2012 election, you will notice that a few months after the 2012 election, that's when the M23 was launched, that there is always some type of uprising that take place, which distracts us for what is really at stake, right? And the comparison that he made, if we just take it at face value, he went to the extreme to talk about Hitler, but we're talking about a modern day genocide. The UN mapping exercise report states that what's happening in the Congo are war crimes, crimes against humanity, and possible genocide if proven in a competent court. And charges Rwanda for having committed genocide in the Congo. That's not the Congolese people saying that, right? That's the mm -hmm. UN for human rights. Yeah. But how come, up until now, there is no accountability. So the escalation of the conflict now, I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think he has, and I'll try to be very quick on this one. I think it has everything to do with the ceasefire deal that the United States organized mm. between Rwanda and Congo. Before the election, when the Chinese drone, the CH4 Chinese drone, shot and killed Rwandan soldiers on Congolese soil in November, something most mm -hmm. people do not realize, that Congo bought three drones. One of them actually shot a Rwandan Defense Forces soldier in DRC, which caused a fear in Washington that because the soldiers were killed on Congolese soil, they were afraid that Kigali was going to respond. 
and they send somebody there. Somebody very important that most people never even heard. I never even knew her name. I knew the position mm -hmm. existed, but I didn't know who she was. They sent Haverhill Haynes. And Haverhill Haynes is the director of national intelligence of the United States at the National Security Council. She's wow. the okay. head of 17 uh, secret service agencies, intelligence agencies of the United States, which includes the CIA. Pretty much, she's the boss of the CIA at the White House. She mm -hmm. flew to Kigali on November 19th. She flew to Kinshasa on November 20th. On November 21st, when she was flying out, the White House put out a press statement discussing what she has just accomplished, that she signed a cease agreement deal between Rwanda and Congo, not the Rwanda and Congo, 23, right? Rwanda and Congo. Mm -hmm up until December 31st of 2023. Mm -hmm. We are in February. The ceasefire yeah. is no longer in place. Yes. Right? Correct. You are not going to fight during the elections. Let's make sure that mm -hmm. our men get elected. December because they want their person in. Yes. The M23 continue to do the usual blackmailing that they've done. They're going to put pressure on the Congolese government. There will be dialogue. They will take the rebels, put them in the Congolese military. They will take some of them, put them in ministries and offices. And then a few years from now, if they use that approach, the fundamental problem will not be dealt with. But how can it be dealt with? We know the aggressor nations. The M23 are crossing the border from Budagana. That's the Ugandan border. Mm -hmm. Right? They are coming literally from Uganda. We and Musavoli, do you think that with that... If um, I may, Seifu, mm -hmm. just in the interest of time, I know you have a couple of more questions there. Mm -hmm. Do you mind just jumping to the Monusco one, which I know is <laughs> is a, a, a big one on your list? All right. Um, uh, Musavuli and maybe also Maurice, you can come in on this. What do you think is the role of Monusco in all this? Uh, having spoken about the UN Security Council and uh, the head of the CIA who was <laughs> sent... Um, to DRC and to Rwanda, of course, to broker a ceasefire deal, but only for a short period of time. What is the role of MONUSCO? Are they really uh, keeping peace in this region, or is there something else that you know we need to dispel here today? Oh, in the interest of time, the short answer is uh, they're obviously not keeping peace. Uh, they're on the way out. They're rolling down the, uh, this year. Uh, they, they've been there for 20 years at a billion dollars over 20 years, a uh, uh, billion dollars a, a year. Um, so they, they're probably, probably the one ray of light with, uh, with Monusco is when they, in 2012, when they dispatched, they changed their mandate uh, to, uh, to an offensive mandate and uh, at the behest of the African Union, uh, initiative coming out of the African Union, established the force uh, intervention brigade uh, where they brought in uh, South African soldiers, Malawi soldiers, uh, Tanzanian soldiers uh, to confront the M23, which was part of a overall strategy, uh, a diplomatic push, uh, the bringing in of uh, the Force Intervention Brigade and uh, uh, heroic uh, military fighting uh, on the part of the Congolese soldiers led by Mamadou Ndala. Uh, so it was a combination of things uh, that, uh, that brought uh, an end to the M23 at, at that time. 2013. Um, so uh, the, the UN, uh, MONUSCO's forces uh, are not, uh, just look at the Congolese people. They're, they've demonstrated against them. They said, we want you out. You're not bringing peace. You're not 
helping us. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think that's really where you need to look uh, to see to get your to get your answer. But I just wanted to say something quickly uh, about that. Uh, figures like Mamadou and Dala, uh, who uh, were just uh, there's a film uh, made uh, about him called This Is Congo, and uh, it documents uh, what what he did, and and it touches into the to the question that uh, that was asked earlier. I'm trying to we're giving examples from uh, Brazil and China and all. Uh, actually, we don't have to leave the continent. Uh, we just have to we go to Burkina Faso from 1983 to 1987, uh, led by uh, Thomas Sankara. Uh, we saw the advancements that were made uh, in terms of the conditions of living for women, uh, addressing the environment uh, for, for workers, the building of infrastructure. When Africans are left uh, providing even a modicum of freedom to, to pursue their own vision of, of, uh, of development, we there's hardly a better model than uh, than Sankara. Within four years, right? Four years, the achievements that he made. Uh, Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, the development that he made in Ghana, when you know, uh, in terms of building dams and roads and infrastructure, the whole bit. So uh, there are models on the African continent uh, within Congo itself uh, that can bring about change. It's just that these uh, compradors, the elites, who are more tethered to the metropole who are tethered to international finance capital, who are tethered uh, to the empire, they work uh, against the interests of, uh, of the masses of Africans, of the working class, of the, of the oppressed masses. So that's why we're saying, I know we're coming to the end, you know, as a solidarity institution, Friends of the Congo, we're mobilizing people to support those models on the ground that we know uh, have the solutions uh, for the challenges that Congo, uh, Congo faces, that they just need to be scaled they need to be supported uh, because think about it. You have Kambali mentioned sculpture capital, Dan Gertler, Glencore, all the, the United Nations mentioned some 85 corporations. All these corporations are coming behind Congo's elite to facilitate the, 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 the pilfering and plundering of Congo. So we need to rally the masses. We need to rally the global constituency behind those Congolese that have the solutions for their country, that are on the front line, bringing about change, models that we know that can not only change Congo, but can transform the African continent. So I really wanted to, to end on, on that, uh, at least from our side on that note, that the solutions are there. They need the support uh, on the part of a global constituency, the support in terms of challenging the forces that are against the Congolese people, multilateral institutions, corporations, foreign governments, empire, US, UK, European Union, and uh, need to bring support behind uh, the, the people who are on the front lines in, in North Kivu, and the front lines in the rainforest, in uh, the old uh, Oriental province, the Chopo province, on the front lines in, uh, in the old Katanga province. So that's really uh, the message that we would like to send uh, from Friends of the Congo uh, to Africans, people of goodwill around the world. And I'll leave with a quote uh, that I think is so appropriate from Patrice Lumumba in his last letter uh, to his wife, um, Pauline, uh, where he said, uh, he was speaking to the Congolese people, he said, uh, we're not alone. Africa, Asia, free and liberated people from every corner of the world be found by the side of the Congolese. So we're making that appeal for you to be found by the, found by the, found by the side of the Congolese as they uh, face these enormous challenges, enormous forces against their attempt to control and determine their own affairs for the benefit of Congo, the sons and daughters of Congo, and for the benefit of Africa overall. Thank you Thank so you. much. Uh, that was Moritz Kani, who was joining us from the Friends of Congo. We also had Kambale Musavuli, who's a representative of Pan-Africanism today, and also from here on studio, uh, 
have been Sefusani and I'm Eric Gavala. I wanted to say just before I have William come in um, that, you know, we'll definitely invite, you know, uh, Maurice and Kambali again. It has been a wealth of information. I'm sure we've all benefited as well as the audience. Um, so we're definitely going to invite them again. And uh, William, what, do you have something to say? Look, this has been an incredibly insightful uh, conversation for me. I, I mean, I knew tidbits of the unit and Gatla, Glencoe connection, but seeing the whole chain basically from the mines in DRC to the Tesla car leaving the factory, that has been incredibly insightful. That has been my biggest takeaway from this conversation today. And I really hope we have a follow-up conversation much, much sooner. We are definitely going to invite you again and again and again because the the expertise and the ex, the way you expertly answered the questions, we're definitely having um, thoughts that we, we we must do this again and again. Uh, to our audience, definitely join us again. You know, we're going to have uh, Pan African Attitude Episode Three coming up. Please follow us on on YouTube, Facebook. Subscribe to all our channels. You can uh, you can find us all across. If you think of a of a social media platform, we are there. So please check that subscribe button. Follow us, and you're going to see you next time. Thank you so much. Peace. Peace. Thank you.